All right, the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 8. We'll be taking a look at verses 34 uh, down to verse number 38. And the Bible says, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake of the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and God, we uh, just pray for your help, Lord, just as we uh, would come before your word and pray that you would help us to understand your word. I pray, God, that you would just give understanding to the hearers, and Lord, I pray that as the word of God goes forth, that it fall upon uh, the good soil, Lord, that your word talks about the good soil of hearts, Lord, that are ready to receive the word, apply the word, and bring forth fruit within their lives. Father God, I pray you help me as I teach and as I preach this morning. God, I pray to help me, uh, just my voice this morning, and uh, just physically, Lord, I pray just to uh, be able to speak with clarity, Lord, and uh, Lord, just with my thoughts and my words, and I pray, God, that you would uh, just uh, bless the sermon this this time, uh, or just this morning. I pray, God, that you would be glorified in it. I pray that the Spirit of God would just speak to hearts, Lord, through the Word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are here in Mark chapter number 8. And last week we saw that Jesus was asking the disciples a very important question. And one that I entitled the greatest question. And it's a question that really every person has to answer at some point in their life. Who is Jesus Christ? And although the crowds, the multitudes, again, they had a, a, a view of Christ. where They saw him as a, as a prophet, as a good teacher. Again, it wasn't... They didn't necessarily have anything bad to say about him. I mean, they were comparing him to people like John the Baptist and Elijah. I mean, that's a good group of people to belong to. At the same time, their opinion fell short of the truth. All right, Jesus was much more than a prophet. And when Jesus turned to the disciples, he asked them the same question. Whom say ye that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman for the group, again spoke up. And, and he, he passed the test with flying colors. He boldly declared... You are the Christ. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter knew who Christ was. The disciples knew who Christ was. They understood the important doctrine of the personhood of Jesus Christ. They understood that he was more than a prophet. No, he was the Son of God. He was the anointed one. He was truly the Messiah. Yet, as we also saw last week, Jesus from there began to teach them uh, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus, you know, tested them to see if they understood the person of Christ. They did. But then he began to explain to them the plan of Christ, the redemptive mission of Christ in the world. The Messiah has come to suffer. The Messiah has come to die. The Messiah has come uh, to be crucified. And three days later to rise again. And remember Peter, you know, being uh, you know, oftentimes hasty with his words and oftentimes getting himself in trouble because of that, you know, declared 
again, boldly just declared that, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in the next breath, he rebukes Christ. And he, he rebukes Christ for what he has said. And not a good idea. So Jesus turns to Peter, looks on the disciples, says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You see, Peter and the disciples needed to realize why Jesus came. Why did the Messiah come? He came to suffer. He came to be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Our iniquity was to be laid upon him. And the Old Testament is is clear about the fact that Jesus would come and suffer. The path of suffering came before uh, before the place of glory. The cross came before the crown Again, in the pathway of the Messiah. And in the, in the verses before us here in verses 34 and following, Jesus turns to the disciples and the group that is, uh, that, that is surrounding him. And he explains to them that if you are going to follow me, if you are going to come down the path of discipleship, you must recognize that just as Christ, in a much greater sense, again, had suffering before glory, the cross before the crown... So as the disciple of Christ, even though it will be to a, to a much lesser degree, you will also suffer in this life. There will also be suffering for you in this life before glory. You must bear your cross before you receive your reward, before you receive your crown. See, the path of discipleship, Jesus lays out before the disciples, lays out before those that are listening to him. And he makes it clear that to follow Christ as a disciple required a couple of things. It requires a willingness to embrace a life of suffering and reproach. It requires a commitment to deny self. And it requires a lifestyle of daily taking up one's cross to follow after Jesus Christ. So we see here that Jesus makes it clear what the mark of a true disciple is. And then he also gives us some motivating truths to spur us on to be full disciples of Jesus Christ, not to hold anything back in our walk with him. In verse 34, we have before us the marks of true discipleship. Uh, take a look at verse 34. It says, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we see here that Jesus gathers his disciples together and Again, there, there's others that, are, that have joined the disciples for this. And Jesus gives them an invitation to follow him as true disciples of Christ. Again, to, to fully follow him as, again, learners of Christ, as, as followers of Christ, as true disciples of Christ. And notice the invitation that Christ has given here. He says, whosoever will come after me. This is an invitation to everyone. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're well-known, whether you're unknown, and whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whoever you are, you may come to Christ. And Jesus spoke of the fact that, again, many in his day would not come, that they might have eternal life. If they would come, they could have eternal life. And Jesus would not coerce any of them to come. They must choose to come. Again, they, they must choose of their own will to come after Christ. This is not a choice that, again, others could make for them, just as, just as for us. And this is not a choice that, your par- that parents cannot make for children, 
Right, this is not a choice that, again, a, a pastor can make for uh, those, those in the congregation. Again, this is the choice you must make. You must come after Christ on your own. You must take up your cross. You must follow after him. Christ gives three conditions for true discipleship. The first condition is found here in verse 34. And, and this first condition is you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. Jesus says, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Now, this is different than, than, the, than the modern day message that is often, again, spoken in the name of Christianity. You know, come after Christ and he'll fix all your problems. You know, come after Christ and he'll take away all your suffering. Come after Christ and he'll give you health, wealth and prosperity. You know, come after Christ and he'll make all your dreams come true. You can just tack them onto your life and he'll make all your, your wildest dreams come true. But the true message of Christ goes totally against the grain of, of, of modern day thinking. It goes totally against the grain of, of, of natural, again, human thinking. Again, the, the way that we naturally think, again, apart from the word of God. Then Jesus comes to us and he says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny Yourself. Now, the world gives a message that is completely contrary to that. I mean, the world says, love yourself. The world says, promote yourself. The world says, again, make sure that that, that you live for yourself. Make sure you do whatever you want to do. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. The world says, look out for number one. Look out for yourself. The world says, pamper yourself. You deserve it. But Jesus says, deny yourself. And Jesus doesn't give that as some sort of optional, you know, part of being a disciple, a, a, a true disciple of Christ. No, this is this is a requirement to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. We must deny ourselves. Now, what does that mean to deny to deny self? Let me summarize it by saying that that to deny self means turning from a life where self is at the center to a life where God is at the center. So it is going from a self-centered life where you're number one, where everything revolves around you, to a life where it is God-centered. God is at the center. Everything revolves around God. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. Harry Ironside refers to this as the utter setting aside of the self-life that Christ alone may be seen. Now, how do you know if you if you have embraced this 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 attitude, this idea, this philosophy of life? If you can truly say to God, not my will, but thine be done, that is God's will be done. Then that is a sign that, again, you are living this truth out. If you say again, I I can say that and I I mean it, not my will be done, but God, thine be done. That is an evidence that I am living a life where I am truly denying self. So we see the first condition, deny self. Condition number two, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Jesus says, whosoever will come after me, let him, we go to the second part of that verse, take up his cross. Now, what does that mean? And obviously that doesn't mean, again, maybe you've seen people who carry physical wooden crosses and uh, again, I, I've seen them in various places where I've lived, and again, I don't think that's the idea that Christ has here, you know, uh, to carry a, a literal physical wooden cross around everywhere you go. Uh, so, so what does it mean? What does this cross bearing refer to? 
Well, the people in Christ's day would have clearly understood, again, this, this uh, example, this illusion that he was given to or that he was giving them within this message. You see, in Bible times, the cross was not a, was not a religious icon to be beautified and adored, all right? oftentimes like it is today. No, the cross was, again, sort of like you think about our modern-day electric chair. It was, it was a symbol of death. It was an instrument of death. It was not something that was, there's nothing beautiful about it. All right? It was an instrument of death. It was, this, it, was, it was an instrument of shame. It was an instrument of, of reproach. Convicted criminals, they would have to carry their own cross to their death in humiliation before the people. It was an instrument of shame and reproach and of death. So that is what the people had in mind in Christ's day whenever Christ refers to taking up your cross. That's what criminals had to do. They had to literally take up their cross that they were going to be crucified upon as they went as they went to their own execution. And Jesus says, if you're going to be his disciple, you must be willing to take up your cross. One commentator, Hybert, says this, and I quote, he says, like his Lord, each disciple must bear his own cross. The reference is not to the common sufferings experienced in life, but to that shame and suffering which the disciples assumes because of his relationship to Jesus. Now, some people have a wrong understanding of this. and They think, well, well my cross is some, you know, is, some, is some difficult thing that I have to bear in my life. Or my cross is, uh, hopefully this isn't the case, again, ho- my cross is my job. You know, or, or, or my cross is a person that, that drives me crazy. Uh, my, my cross is some physical affliction. That's, again, those may be things that are true in your life, but again, that's not what is being referred to here. When Jesus speaks of taking up our cross, he is referring to the fact that you must be willing to identify with Jesus Christ to be his disciple. To take up your cross means that you're willing to embrace the shame, the reproach, the opposition, the mockery, maybe even the persecution that comes with following after the Lord Jesus Christ as you walk through a world that is totally opposed to Christ, that is controlled by the spirit of Antichrist. And as you walk through this world as a Christ follower, you recognize, again, as they hated Christ, they will also hate true Christians. They will also oppose me if I speak out what is true in a world of lies. That's something you must be willing to embrace. That is something you must be willing to embrace and recognize that this is part of being a disciple. In Luke 9.23, it adds this to the, to the phrase here. It says, uh, Jesus says, uh, to be his disciple, you must take up your cross daily. Right? So this is a daily thing. This is a daily surrender to Christ. This is a a daily embrace of Christ, an embrace of his reproach, the reproach to the cross that comes with being a Christian. This is a a daily embrace of the opposition that you might receive because of the fact that you are a Christian. Mark 10.38 says something similar here. He says, Jesus says, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of of me. You see, when you take up your cross, you must embrace the reality that because you follow Christ, because Christ is your Lord and Savior, because of the fact that you live your life according to the Word of God and you're led by the Spirit of God, there might be consequences because of that. You may lose, you may distance friends because you love Jesus. 
There may be family members that don't want anything to do with you because you love Jesus. There there may be people who avoid you at work, you know, because you love Jesus. You know, there, there are certain things that will be brought into your life because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. You know, you may lose your reputation in this world. The world may uh, may mock Christians and may look down upon Christians, and you got to be willing to let to let what the world thinks go out the window. Uh, you may lose a job position or a job promotion. You know, for many believers down through the years, many believers have lost literally lost their lives. Uh, go read church history, and you'll see that. Go read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you'll see that many Christians have, and still today, you know, many Christians lose their lives. Uh, for being a Christian, for following after Jesus Christ. But Jesus says you must be willing to embrace what it means to identify with Jesus Christ. So that's condition number two. Condition number three, you must follow Jesus. Whosoever will come after me, let him, notice the end of the verse, follow me. To follow Christ is to obey Christ. Okay, to, to follow Christ is to is to submit yourself to the word of Christ. As John 10, 27 says, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Alright, what is the evidence of somebody who belongs to Christ? They follow him. Alright, somebody who says, Yes, I follow Christ, but they're going the opposite direction, it makes you makes you wonder, you know, it makes you wonder if they ever if they ever got in the sheepfold in the first place. Now, one of, one of the evidences of a, of a disciple, of a, generically speaking, of a child of God, is the fact that they desire to follow Christ. Again, they're not going to do it perfectly. None of us do. But there ought to be at least that desire and that direction of following after Jesus. John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So in summary, Jesus says this, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. All right, now let me, let me just give a side note real quick, and then we'll move on to the next verses here. Again, don't, don't let this confuse you. All right, remember even the fact that Jesus is speaking to, uh, to his own disciples. You know, men, uh, other than Judas, again, these are, these are saved men. All right, so don't, don't be confused by this. Again, don't. These are not things we do in order to get saved. All right, salvation is not conditional upon our works. Obviously, all right, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right, and if these were conditions we had to follow step by step in order to get saved, it would, it would be a form of of works based salvation. All right, so let me let me say this: these conditions here, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ. Are not the root of salvation, which is faith alone in Christ alone, but they are the fruit of salvation. All right, so these are not the root of salvation, these are the fruit of salvation. You see, when God saves a person, He transforms that person, He makes that person a new creature in Christ. And the evidence of that, the evidence that a person has truly, genuinely been converted to Christ, is that they will. Live a life where, again, they will seek to deny self, take up the cross, and follow after Jesus Christ. Consider what one commentator says, J.C. Ryle. He says, and I quote, he says, Salvation is undoubtedly, undoubtedly all of grace. It is offered freely in the gospel to the chief of sinners without money and without price. 
But all who accept this great salvation must prove the reality of their faith by carrying the cross after Christ. All right, so discipleship, salvation. They're two distinct things, but they're very close. They're very much closely related things. All right. Saving faith produces discipleship. Salvation will make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. It'll, it'll set you on the path of discipleship and where you are denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ. And that is the fruit of what happens or what will be seen in the life of someone who has been saved. Let's continue on, though. Not only do we see the marks of discipleship, we also see the motivation for true discipleship. The motivation. Christ gives us some motivating truths to spur us on in our down the pathway of discipleship. And I want to be a greater disciple, a closer disciple. I don't want to be a disciple who follows Christ from far away. No, I want to be a disciple that follows him again as close as I can get. And Christ gives us here some motivating truths to spur us on to discipleship. Truth number one is this. Self-preservation brings self-destruction. Self-preservation brings self-destruction. Take a look at verse 35. And Christ has some pretty, uh, some pretty strong things to say in these verses. And he says this, verse 35, he says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. So Jesus here presents two groups of people, representing really two ways of life. There are those that live a life independent from God. They try to, again, keep life for themselves. And there's another group over here, and they live a life of devotion to Christ and dependence upon Christ, and they've given away their life. They've lost their life to Christ. Again, they've given up their rights to their life, and they've handed the reins over to Jesus to be in charge, to be in control, to be Lord. So let's consider these two groups. The first group here are those who live their lives independent from God. Take a look at verse 35. The Bible says, for whosoever shall save his life, shall lose it. All right, we see that there in verse number 35. All right, so here we find is your first option for how to live your life. You can save your life. By how, 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 again, how would you do that? Many people do it. By living for self, by living for pleasure, by living for sin, by living for the things of this world, there are many people that cling on to this life as, as, if, as if this life is all that matters and they forget about God and they forsake the gospel and they have no interest in, in the true riches of the word of God. They seek after earthly riches, but they have no interest in the true riches of God. They, they store up bigger barns in order to store their possessions. And uh, like the foolish uh, rich farmer we read about in, in the Bible. And although, again, you may enjoy those things for a few years— in the end, if that's what you live for, you lose it all. If you live solely for this world and the things of this world, Jesus makes it clear. If you live for all those things rather than the things of God and the things of Christ and heavenly things, at the end of your life, you lose all those earthly things. You lose all your earthly treasures. You lose all your earthly, uh, the, the earthly things you have lived for. One Bible teacher says this, and I quote, he says, anyone who hoards life selfishly will lose it. 
Life is like sand. The harder one tries to grasp it, the faster it flows through one's fingers. And there's people who do that again, all the time. There are, there are multitudes who live that way. They live selfishly for this life and this life alone. And they, they, they try to grasp onto these earthly things. Uh, but, but again, as they age, as they get older, guess what happens? Life slips away like sand through the fingers. And there's nothing they can do about it because they haven't lived for things that truly matter. They haven't lived for the things of Christ. So the first group are those that live independent from God. Let's consider the second group. These are those who live in devotion to and dependence on God. Come back to the verse here in verse 35. Jesus says, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. So here's your second option of how you can live your life. You can lose your life to Christ. You can lose your life to the will of God. You can lose your life to Christ and to the Gospel. You can hand over the reins of your life to Jesus Christ. Hand over the keys to him. Let him be in charge. Let him be Lord. And let him do through you his will in your life. You can die to self. You can die to sin. You can turn your back upon the world. You can invest your life in eternal things, in the things of God, and follow Jesus. And that is the group that is being described here. Those who lose their life. And for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the Gospels. And it may cost you. It will cost you. It may cost you time. It may cost you energy. It may cost you health. It may cost you resources. It may cost you reputation. It may even cost you your life. You know, but in the end, you found true life. Matthew 10, 39. says, He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So we find here that there is a scriptural paradox all right, that goes totally against the grain of, of the way humanity thinks and the way our culture thinks. And here it is. True life is found in death. True life is found in death. When I get to the end of myself, I die to myself. I, I turn my back upon my old life. I turn to Christ. I hand the reins over to him. Guess what happens? True life begins. I find true life, real life, sustaining life, eternal life when that happens. On the other hand, those who live for self instead of Christ, what do they do? They, they forsake true life. They, they think they have life, but they're not living real life. They have an illusion of life, but they have yet to experience true life. Until they come to Christ, surrender to him, live for him. Something I shared yesterday, a minute of the word I want to share with you this morning. There's a story that is told of a missionary by the name of James Calvert. James Calvert and his team were missionaries back in the 1800s to the, uh, to the Fiji Islands. And the Fiji Islands were not some tropical destination as, as they are today that people uh, vacation to. No, the Fiji Islands were, again, a, a place where, where there were cannibals. I mean, you, would, you, you were pretty much guaranteed that uh, you were going to be attacked, you were going to be opposed, you may even, you may even lose your life. You go, go into savages like this. And as James Calvert and his team were on the ship, they were going to the Fiji Islands, the shipmaster turned to James Calvert and he said this, he said, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if, you if you go among such savages. So the shipmaster cried out. He says, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. Why are you going to, the, why are you going to these cannibalistic people that are, going to, that are going to eat you? They're going to kill you. They're going to, they're going to harm you. 
and your whole group that you're responsible for. Why would you do such a thing? You're going to die. Calvert replied to the shipmaster and he said this. He said, we died before we came here. We died before we came here. Oh, they were physically alive, yes. But they had died to self-will in order to live out Christ's will for them. They had already died spiritually. You know, they, they had already died to sin. They had already died to the things of this world. They had already died to the, the self-life in order to embrace the Christ life. In order to, again, go to these people and, yes, risk their lives for the sake of reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to them, again, the, the, any losses, again, were, were much less, were, were small in comparison to the rewards that would come as a result of that. So here's the thing. Again, do you want to save your life? And do you want to live true life? Then give up the keys. Hand over the reins to Jesus Christ. Let him be in charge. Let him be in control. Let him guide your life. Again, and in the end, you live a life like that. You may not have fame. You probably won't have fortune. You may not have prestige and position and clout in this world. Again, all those things are going to pass away anyways. What do those matter? You're going to have the things that truly matter. You're going to have the things that the world can't give you. You're going to have eternal things that will last beyond this life. Eternal rewards and riches beyond this life. So you lose your life. Lose it in the will of God. Lose it in serving Jesus Christ. And you will find that temporary loss brings eternal gain in the end. Let's continue on, though. You see, that's the first truth. The second truth is this. Worldly gain leads to eternal loss. Worldly gain leads to eternal loss. You know, one of my favorite verses uh, to share with unbelievers when I'm witnessing to them is here. And it says this, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? All right, so in other words, again, what will it profit you if you spend your whole life accumulating earthly riches, living for earthly popularity, living for earthly prestige, living for the things of this life, living for earthly pleasures? If you lose your soul in the end, you got a bad bargain. You got a couple years of, of, of enjoyment of earthly things, but in the end, if that's what you've lived for, again, you, you got a bad bargain. Again, if you lose your soul in the end, what's, what does it matter? The moment you step out of this life into eternity, you can't take those things with you. You can't take the money in your bank account with you. You can't take, again, the, the, the material possessions you have. You can't take those with you. And the tragedy is that many people live that kind of lifestyle. They live for the things of this world. They live for the things of this life. And some of them even become rich. Some of them become popular. Some of them become famous. And the world bows down to them and, and it thinks that they're, they're wonderful and great. But to die and lose your soul, is it really worth it? To die and lose your soul because you forsook the true riches that are found in the gospel and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, then living a life to the glory of God? That's true riches. That is true riches that will last beyond this life. In your soul is the most precious thing you have. Your soul is that part of you that lives beyond this life, either in heaven 
or either in hell, depending upon what you did with Jesus Christ. And your eternal soul is more valuable than all the money, all the riches, all the fame, all the power, all the toys, all the things in this world. Your soul is more valuable than all those things. Because all those things pass away. All those things are for a season. All those things are just you enjoy them for a few years and then they're gone. But your soul lives on. And your soul lives on beyond this life. Many people live their lives for the things of this world. They gain the world, but they lose their soul. And like I said earlier, that's a bad bargain. Consider what one commentator said, J.C. Ryle. And I quote, he says, Of all unprofitable and foolish bargains that man can make, the worst is that of giving up, one's, of giving up his soul's salvation for the sake of this present world. One who says, I don't want the gospel. I don't want the things of Christ. Again, I don't want that church stuff. Again, I don't want that religious stuff in my life. Again, I want to live how I want to live, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. And we probably all know people who live like that. We all, again, probably uh, know many people who live like that. And it's a tragedy. You can gain the world, but if you lose your soul, what have you really gained? Again, what, is, what is the profit of that? Let's continue on, though. Truth number three. And that is the shame of Christ now leads to shame by Christ then. And here's what I'm referring to. Verse 38 says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus makes it clear he is coming back. He is coming back to the glory of his father. He is coming back with the holy angels. And he gives a warning that when he comes back, again, don't be ashamed to be identified with Jesus Christ. Don't ever get to a place in your life where you are ashamed to be identified with Jesus Christ. Again, ashamed of his name, ashamed to you know, bear the name Christian, uh, ashamed of his word, ashamed of, of his people. You know, ashamed of the things of God. Jesus says he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. Albert Barnes, a uh, Bible commentator, says this. He says, if we are ashamed of him here, he will be ashamed of us there. That is, if we, if we reject and disown him here, he will reject and disown us there. And again, that's exactly what, what an unbeliever does. I mean, they, they reject Christ. They disown Christ. They don't want anything to do with Christ. And therefore, they will be disowned. Again, a Christian, however, must be unashamed of Jesus Christ. A Christian must be one who would rather be ostracized and rejected by the world than to reject Christ before men. You see, a true disciple is one who will be willing to bear the stigma of being a Christian. One who is willing to bear the reproach and the losses and the opposition that may come in your life, that probably will come in your life, and probably already has. Get for following after Christ, for living your life for the glory of God. A true disciple will openly confess Christ before men. Consider this quote. J.C. Ryle says this in a quote. He says, better a thousand times confess Christ now and be despised by man than be disowned by Christ before his father in the day of judgment. A couple of closing thoughts this morning. And we recognize, first of all, that following Jesus begins with salvation. Right? That, that is the doorway into discipleship. 
is repentance and belief. Repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Placing your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone is, is the doorway that opens up the pathway of discipleship. Can I ask you this morning, if you say, again, I know that I'm saved. Again, I know that again, I, there, there's been a time in my life when I have repented and believed on Christ. I ask you this. Are you displaying your faith in Christ through daily surrender to his will and to his word? His will is revealed in his word. And are you daily surrendering to him, daily taking up your cross? And that is how you do it, is by daily spending time in the word and surrendering yourself to the truth of his word. So following Christ begins with salvation, but it continues with daily surrender, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following after Jesus Christ. A couple of things real quick. Again, we recognize these things don't save us. They don't add to our salvation. They don't keep us saved. Rather, they are the evidence of salvation. They are the fruit of salvation that will be seen in the life of the believer. Again, understanding to varying degrees. I ask you this this morning. Are you willing to bear the reproach of Jesus Christ? Do you openly confess Christ before men? Have you lost your life in the will of God? I want to share something with you in closing. And again, I'm not going to hand these out right now, but I'll get, you can take one of these on the way out. And there's a poem that I came across and uh, if I've read this before, again, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have or not, but I may have. Uh, but a poem called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. And I'll close with this. It says, it says here, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sidewalking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudity, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. These words were found in the possession of a young African after he was martyred for his faith in Zimbabwe. He denied himself, took up his cross, and fully followed Jesus. And there's copies of that on the back if you'd like to uh, take that and just have, have a copy for yourself. But All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you, Lord, and God, I pray that you would uh, take the truth that has been spoken this morning. And God, I thank you, Lord, for giving me the strength to be able to preach. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would take the word that has gone forth and that you would apply it to hearts. And God, I pray, Lord, that Lord, you'd work in lives. I pray for uh, believers here this morning, God, that you would, Lord, help them to 
uh, Lord, just to be full disciples of Christ, to live out this pathway of discipleship, to truly deny self, take up the cross, and follow Christ day after day, Lord, until you call them home. God, I pray, Lord, that if we, Lord, if we see anything in our life that is that is that you've convicted us about, Lord, uh, Lord, whether that's maybe we're living for self rather than living for Christ, Lord, maybe we are ashamed of Christ in some area, uh, Lord, maybe we're not openly confessing Christ before men. God, I pray you'd help us, Lord, to repent of that, and Lord, just uh, turn to you and and live a life of, of obedience uh, to Christ. Help us to be faithful disciples of Christ. I pray. Give us strength, I pray, to do so. I pray this in Jesus' name.